All right, very good. Well, uh, today, uh, well, last week, we started the, uh, the little interlude, that's what I'm going to call it, between the end of Revelation, so there'll be no more God's revelation, um, and then uh, until the next time we start it, another one. Um, but during this time, like between now and probably the, uh, the uh, Christmas season and all of that, we'll be, be doing kind of what I call one-week wonders. And so one-week wonder just means that there'll be one-week lessons or maybe short little mini lessons, like a three-lesson uh, series of some kind. And so I continue to get suggestions from you all via email, and thank you for doing that, and, and please keep doing that. Because sometimes after a while, I go a little brain dead, and I just can't think of what's uh, what would be of interest to you all. So uh, it'll be very practical in nature most of the time. And today's uh, lesson is uh, is going to be uh, 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 practical in the sense of, and so I entitled it "Serving Jesus in Our Upside Down World." Does anybody doubt that we are now living in an upside down world? I don't think so. All right, so. So let's, uh, let's get into it for today. So ever since March of 2020, the world in which we live feels very upside down. So consider the following contradictions. People are obsessing about safety and security without considering how harmful the anxious obsessing itself is. Have so you ever thought about that? is that when we're so focused on something and we're so worried about something, we're worried or thinking about the thing itself and we're not thinking about the effect that the worrying itself has, right? And so what people, what was very much on people's minds today, and all you have to do is uh, listen to any newscast or listen to any opinion or any proclamation by anybody and think about how many times the words safety and security are mentioned. Okay, that is on people's minds. But again, what people don't think about the fact is that obsessing is equated biblically with ongoing worrying over things that you can't control. So the future, other people, all that kind of thing. So you think about that just from the perspective of the effect that it has on our our minds and our bodies. Is that God? God, God was amazing. He when He built us. He built us in such a way that we were designed to be able to handle well little spurts of anxiety, little spurts of change, little spurts of things that are different, okay? When was the last time any of us had a little spurt of any of that, right? Okay? And so what's happened is is that there, it, there, we're thinking now about long-term effects of uh, ongoing change ongoing adjustment, ongoing stress, all those kinds of things. And it starts to affect the way people live like, like their normal lives. Now, I haven't had seen this yet, but, I've, but I'm thinking that, that that's due somewhat to this phenomenon of people having fistfights on airplanes. Have you seen this? You know, it used to be that the only fistfight you would have is you were mad because the plane was late or something like that. But now it's like this sort of idea of being considerate of others in that moment is totally gone. And so somebody says, well, I'm not going to wear a mask. Hmm, fine. Or I am going to wear a mask. Or how come you're not wearing a mask? And so it's like the... uh, it's like the patience that people have or the, the tolerance that people have or the bandwidth that they would have is about that much, 
right? And all it takes is somebody to say something crossways or to look at you in a funky way, and all of a sudden you're 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 blowing up. Okay, uh, communities are at odds with each other over mass mandates. Boy, are we hearing a lot about that, right? Vaccine requirements, social distancing. I've noticed that social distancing is kind of taking the back seat now to uh, vaccine ma- mandates. And the whole thing of can you keep your job, can you not keep your job? And there's a lot of people that are saying, I don't need this job. And I'm thinking, well, yes, you do, you know. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's just that just that whole thing of people making these these like big decisions in life. And they're basing it on whether or not they they want somebody telling them what to do uh, regarding a mask or vaccine or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, but it's getting to the point where, and this is what I, this is where I think that we, we struggle. It's difficult to discern how do you love your neighbor as yourself and still maintain your individual autonomy and freedom. Okay, see, that's almost like that's the core question, isn't it? Is, is on the one hand, I, we, there's two kinds of freedoms that we enjoy. One is our, our American freedom, our individualistic freedom, but we also enjoy Christian freedom. There's a lot that we have as Christians that Christ has freed us from from uh, being coerced, if you will, or compelled by his law. And yet, um, how, do, how do you fit that all together with the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself? How do, how do I make room in my, uh, in, in my world where I'm free to do kind of what I want in some sense of that? Um, and yet, how would I make room for you? And how do I make room for you if you insist that I be a certain way in my world in order to have our worlds be together? How do we do that? And right? That do what? And I can be that way. You can be that way. Yes. <laughs> what way? So I can back up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But see, that's the di- isn't that the difficulty? Is that we get worried about, well, you do your freedom without a mask, and I do my freedom with a mask. Well, then what about our droplets? Who's talking to them? You know, so that's, that's the difficulty, right? Isn't that the, isn't that the difficulty? Yeah. I am amazed by, because I like to watch uh, pro sports and college, how many uh, football games are on TV where there's like 100,000 people. I mean, just, it just is one of those sort of things that it just kind of blows my mind. So anyway... Okay, and then the third one is is elected officials feel compelled to impose rules on their constituents, and yet when publicly seen flaunting them, appear to justify it in some way. The result is an ever-increasing mistrust of political leadership with other institutional leadership being lumped in. So what you end up with is educators, pastors, law enforcement, uh, elections, uh, everybody gets lumped in now as being suspect. That it's not like, well, we can trust these, but clearly we can't trust those. It's like anybody in authority, CDC, I don't know, what, is there anything else you can think of that you would throw in there? Oh, yeah, law enforcement, FBI, yeah, sure, the whole thing, Uh, DOJ, Hmm, what? Do what? Yeah, the military. Okay, see, anybody that, that is seen as, has a, a hierarchy of uh, authority is immediately lumped in together and says, well, clearly, 
uh, you're not thinking of our best interests, you're thinking only of your own. Okay? So, number two, ever since March 2020, it seems that there has been an unending demand for us to adjust to the pandemic. Who remembers these proclamations? The summer heat will kill it. Remember that? Remember in March? We were going, and so, you know, I bought into that. I thought, well, this is good. That one redeemable factor of 100 degrees in Texas, right? So I was thinking, I was kind of waiting. Yeah, let's hurry up. Let's, August needs to hurry up and come because the summer heat will kill it. Uh, the goal is to flatten the curve. Do you remember that one? Yeah, that's right. Now we know it was to kill the curve, right? And then I love this one. The winter cold will kill it, okay? So we gave up on summer, and we thought, well, in Siberia, probably they're not having it. Uh, Follow the science. We're still hearing that proclamation, okay? Uh, Herd immunity is the goal. Remember that one? Okay. How about this one? Online learning is just as effective. How about that? Yeah, boy, oh boy. See, again, a lot of these things are said to hype it. Have you noticed that? They're hyping it, and the reason they hype it is so we would buy into it. And I'm so naive, I believe everything that gets said, so um, I'm continually disappointed. So, you know, whatever is the next thing, you know, who knows? Who knows? So what does it all mean? And more importantly, here's the question, how do we serve Jesus in this upside-down world? Because, see, that's the thing, is there? there's a lot going on in the world that we say, oh, phew. I can't stand it, or, oh, I love it. I mean, there's opinions all over the map in terms of the world itself and how well people can adjust, how well people can't adjust, all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, the Christian has a whole different gig going on. See, we have a different purpose in life. It isn't just um, me and you know my family and my little world, my little life. It isn't just that. It is that, but it isn't just that. It's, it's how do we serve our Lord and is is the world that seems to be very unreceptive to it, yet in the world there are people that might be receptive to it, so how do we do that? And so I'm going to offer some thoughts about how we do that, and I'm drawing on uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Okay, So he starts out by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings. Okay, what do we know about James? So James, the James that's here is different from the James and the James and John that was Pastor Coleman was mentioning in the sermon this morning. Okay, so those of you that were here, if you weren't here, sorry to spill the beans, but that's what the sermon is. So the two J- the James that, that we often hear most about uh, in, in terms of the apostles are James and John. Remember those guys? They were sons of who? Zebedee, and they had a fishing empire. These guys had uh, their, their dad's boats, a family business, you know how that goes. And so you have their boats, and they have the dad's boats, and we remember the story of how Jesus went to them and, and said, you know, follow me. And I just, there's this great moment in the Bible where it says, they left their dad in the boat and followed Jesus. Haven't you ever wanted to do that, you know? <laughs> like your your parent is cleaning out the garage or something like that, and you just say, I have to follow the Lord now. So <laughs> I know, that was always my dream to do that too. 
So, so anyway, this James is the one that's considered was considered traditionally to be the half brother of Jesus. So, now if you're Catholic, you will say, no, no, that is not true because in Catholic teaching, Jesus didn't have any brothers and sisters because Mary was a perpetual virgin uh, from the beginning of her life all the way to the end. Okay, so if you're Catholic then you're going to have a different view of that. But, but if you're Lutheran, you'd say, well, it's a half-brother of uh, Jesus. And so you can kind of see where that would have been difficult. It, can you imagine your brother, your older brother, is the Messiah? <laughs> and you're not. <laughs> now, can you imagine that? Like growing up with that, like how many of you grew up with a with an older brother, older sibling, and you were always being compared to the older sibling? How many of you had that? Dad loved him best, and why can't you be like him? Right? He walks on water. Right? Yeah. I mean, I personally, I never have had that kind of experience because I was and still am the older brother. So you know, I uh, sort of have to live with that pressure. But. Um, but but you can see where that would have been a struggle for James, right? Because here you got your brother who's being sort of proclaimed as the Messiah, and then he goes through everything he goes through, and you're kind of there sort of in the shadows, and you're trying to figure this out. So tradition has it that James was a skeptic, that he was kind of a reluctant believer, and so we think, well, then how did that turnaround happen for him? Because he later became the first bishop of the Church of Jerusalem. So he was, he was like the guy. So how did that happen? Well, the scriptures tell us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter. We know that. He appeared to Paul, but he also appeared specifically and personally to James. I kind of wish that the Bible would tell us how that conversation went, right? Yeah. Right? Isn't that cool? But, but that was a special, I think in some sense of it, a, uh, a special care that Jesus had for his brother with the idea that, you know, I, I'm alive, and you saw me die, and now I'm alive. And so that would have been part, a big part of why there was such a turnaround. Okay? All right, so I'm just kind of following the notes here a little bit in terms of... Uh, in terms of the layout of our uh, of our lesson, okay. So then he says, so how do he say? He said uh, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So the note there is that the letter was written presumably to early Jewish Christians who had been scattered around the known world due to persecution from the Romans as well as the hardline protectors of Judaism who saw Christianity as a threat to his existence. So that was a, that was a battle that St. Paul and the early apostles were always fighting, was that there was a group of, of the hardline Jude, Judah, uh, uh, Jewish people who felt that Christianity was kind of cutting into their turf. All right, But there was also within Christianity itself in the early church some people who had such a strong... Um, and and pretty defined idea of what being a Christian consisted of, that they insisted on the idea that you have to become Jewish before you can become Christian. Okay, so you have to be circumcised. You have to follow all the rules. You have to follow all the 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 uh, 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 sort of restrictions of that. 
and that if you didn't, then you really weren't a true Christian. Okay, And so that was part of the battle that they were fighting as well. So scattering the believers. So part of this idea of scattering the believers is that would, would you say that if you were a believer in Jesus and then somebody came along and started persecuting you and started saying to you, you can no longer live here because you're a Christian, would you say that's a good thing or a bad thing? Depends on what your answer is. Would you say it's a good thing or a bad thing? That somebody is coming and they're saying, if you're a Christian, you can't live here. If you're a Christian, you can't work here. If you're a Christian, you can't shop here. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Most of us will say a bad thing. We would say, wait a minute. You're, you're saying to me that because of my faith or my religious freedom or whatever it is, that I, however I define that, you're saying that the price tag for that, the cost of that, is that I can no longer stay within the environment that I want to stay in. That's what was happening to these people. Okay? They're scattered everywhere. So look at Mark 14, 27. You know, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what the reality is of what it would be like. Now he's looking ahead to his uh his arrest and and then subsequent death, but the principle that he lays out is quite telling. He says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and what will happen? The sheep will scatter. That's exactly right. So the idea of that from the enemies of Christianity's point of view was, we'll kill Jesus, and that'll make everybody flee, and then we'll start to persecute and round up the leaders. And if we can round up the leaders, and we can either put them in prison or just kill them, then the people who are leaning on those people for the strength of their faith will uh, will flee, and then they'll die out altogether. Okay, so that was kind of that was kind of the goal there. All right, and again, the purpose was to either weaken Christianity, or in some sense to neuter it, and then that way, then there would be no uh, reproduction, if you will, of uh, Christianity. So um, thinking about just maybe from a practical point of view. How many of you are not original to Plano, Texas? Holy cow. Okay. Me either. All right. All right. So somehow most everybody in this room got here. You didn't start out here, right? But you got here. Okay. So you were somewhere else and then you came here, right? Okay, so what are the stresses that are associated with going from where you started out to where you are now? If you, some of you have to think way back in your memory of this. Okay. All right, so you accumulate a lot of stuff, very important stuff, by the way, in where you were, and then you have to figure out what to do with all of that, those important treasures, right? Um in order to move to the new place, and of course the transport of it and the cost of the transport of it, but then the place where you end up maybe doesn't have a basement, right? Where you used to stash all that stuff, right, and save it for your kids. How many have? How many of you have been saving things for your children for uh, a number of like eras, right? 
thinking that your kids eventually are going to want the stuff that you have been saving for them, right? And then only to find out what? They don't want it. And it's crushing, isn't it? Because you have put your heart, soul, and mind into those things, thinking these children that deserve none of it, they they will appreciate this, and they will have memories associated to it, and they will be so grateful, I I just know, right? And then they go, eh, whatever. All right, so. You know, Pastor, I have my grandmother's old kitchen clock, an old wooden one with it. Really? Wow. And I'll take it. I, 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 I love that thing. My yeah. kids don't want it. I know. Just give it to me. That'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, but see, that's the thing. The stuff we love, we think they're going to love. Or the stuff that we used, we think they're going to use. So, like, we have, uh, let's see, what do we have? We have my wife's grandmother's china. Yeah, see? Do you want it? You can have it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I assure you, our daughter, she does not want that. So here we got these boxes in our garage sitting on top of this table thing, and it goes all the way to the ceiling. And then on the side, and we, so our discussion yesterday was well, maybe we need to get a storage thing. A storage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the goofy thing. This is so goofy. Why are we storing something for the future that we don't want and she doesn't want either? So, see, we're thinking, well, after we go to heaven, we won't care, you know. So maybe that's just it. You don't have to make you don't have to make that excruciating decision about what it is because you know that if you if you sell it or if you give it away, that relative whose it was will turn over in their grave. <laughs> And Grandma, you know, Gotti, who was, you know, the, the uh, matriarch of the family, and she imposed this will on us. It was not quite a deathbed thing, but almost that. That we promised, right, that we would keep it. And so you feel so, like, disloyal. So anyway, enough about me. Yeah, so. I'm so glad you brought this up. Oh, you are? You're glad I brought this up? Yeah, the the encyclopedia is like because because that you held on to that all those years. You know what is a big thing now with uh, with pastors as they retire? What do we do with all those books? And seminarians, they get it all online now. It's all online. And so you got, you got these massive libraries of hoping that you can just sort of leave it and then, you know, leave it and let the next guy worry about it. So, I mean, yeah, but there's just that thought. Yeah, Sue. Or uh, my mother had a whole bunch of Christmas dishes. Um, yeah, Christmas dishes. My son dishes. said, I want it. Oh. I got it back. You got it back? How did that happen? Because they didn't want to have to wash the dishes. Oh. <laughs> I have them back, and they're in a box. So is there like something where we can say that you get it and then we're not taking it back? Is that kind of what? Maybe we have to do that. Maybe that's how we have to do that. Yeah. Yeah, Kathy. I think we need to have the class on Facebook Marketplace here. Oh, really? Is there such a thing as that? What is that? It's a wonder seller. 
sell your oh yeah, you can sell your stuff on Facebook uh, Marketplace. Okay, great. Does anybody know how to do that? No. Kathy, you know how, Kathy knows how to do it. So you get. Bought something the other day. Oh, Kathy. I guess it does. So hey, I'll put you in charge of that for this uh, for my family. That'll be perfect. For the China, we should be using that stuff every day. Use the good stuff every day. Because a lady told me once that if I don't use all my good fine china, linens, and etc., I'm just saving them in a drawer or a cabinet for her. I said, who's her? He said, she said, you're ne his next wife after you die. <laughs> <laughs> you stuff that you preserve. I've been eating on my china every day. Well, there you go. High class. High class. There you go. All right. So I, I, how did we get onto this? I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 the stress. Okay, so stress or relocate. So you sort of get that, you know, uh, as people move around, as people go from place to place, then there is this kind of idea that uh, what do I do with all the stuff? So that's, that's one of the things that goes with that. You know, uh, other, fear, other things that involve uh, relocating is the stress of fitting in, you know? How many of you came from Minnesota? Right? Yeah. And you discovered we don't talk like you guys do, you know? I mean, how about that part, you know? And we don't know what LEFSA is, and we don't really want to know. So there's just, you know, there's some things that, that go along with that, that uh, you're left with, okay. And so what James is presenting, and here's kind of, finally we get back to the Bible, okay. Um, what James is presenting is that there is a perspective toward those things, that Christians can take. And that if we take that perspective, whatever it is, then that will make all the difference in the world in terms of whether, it isn't whether you like stuff going on. It isn't like whether you feel comfortable or where you could fit in. It's not any of that stuff. It, rise, it raises us to a different level of perspective in terms of dealing with the stresses of which some of which we do it ourselves, but a lot of which now society does to us. Okay, so let's start with that perspective. Notice what he says in verse two: "Consider it pure what." Ooh. So, what does it mean to consider something? See, you think about it from that point of view is like consider it. Oh, okay, that think about it or count it as something or take a perspective. So what is it that affects your capacity to consider something? How are you affected? How is your considering affected? Is it affected by the mood you're in, for example? If you're in a bad mood, right? How does that affect your considering? It doesn't affect it at all. So, you just no, think I can't I, be bothered with that right now. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> consider it deeply like I should. Oh, so you would stay shallow? Yeah. I think that, again, the stresses that people are under today create this much bandwidth to go deep. And what that means is, is that we're probably mostly reacting to things on the surface level preferences and stuff like that, as opposed to thinking deep, more deeply about um, how, do, how is this going to impact people around me? How is this going to impact my faith? How am I going to uh, treat this with joy? Uh, those kinds of things, okay? 
And that's not good or bad, but it just says that's where people are at today. All right, so let's see what he says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. What is joy? If we're supposed to consider it pure joy, Happy. What's joy? So happy. So how does happy, like, are you happy all the time? No. no. Okay, so happy kind of comes and goes. Right. Content, maybe? Content. Contented with. Contented. Yeah, we're trying to figure it out. So joy, happy, content, okay. What else? Joy. Thankful. Thankful. Okay. Yes. Joy is, is a situation that's not affected by the circumstances. So you're saying joy is bigger than circumstances. Happiness is affected by the circumstances. Okay, if we, yeah, if we define it that way, we could say if happy things happen, I'm happy, right? Joy is not necessarily affected by what's going on. Joy is deeper, it's more. Yes. So when you look, oh, yes. Hi. Hi. Romans 8, the eternity Yes. Joy is knowing what's coming. Joy is knowing what's coming, even if you don't know it, it's, you're trusting it. Correct. Yeah. It's knowing that whatever we're suffering here is not going to compare. It's not worth comparing, is it? Going to yeah. That's right. So what that tells you is that joy is tied to something outside of ourselves. Because if it's tied to something within me, then it's then the quality of it or the duration of it is going to be greatly impacted by how I feel about it, what I think about it, what I do with it. All right. So the classic definition of joy, if you take uh, take the letters of the word joy and you sort of break them apart, you would have Jesus, others, you. Okay. I always used to think it was Jesus, you. And others, so it'd be okay, <laughs> which is what happens if we goof that up, right? Okay, so Jesus, others, yourself, but it starts with what? The J it starts with Jesus. So if you're not connected to Jesus through faith and have that sense of grace in your life through Him, then the only thing you have is others in yourself. You have oi. <laughs> And a lot of people are living their lives that way, thinking, uh, if only I can get the right things going on in my life, and if I can get other people to do what I want them to do, that's others in you, then you'll have joy. You will not have joy. Because anything in yourself is short-lived. See, it, that, that's a problem. It, it doesn't, it, there's not a duration to it. Now, you can chemically induce it, and many people are trying to do that, Right? By just simply ingesting something or partaking of something in your life, oh, that will give me joy. No, it won't. Joy is all-pervasive, and that's why it's connected to God. That's why it's connected to Jesus. Yeah, Barbara. I don't know where I read this, but it said, peace is joy at rest. Joy is peace on its feet. Oh, my gosh. Now I have to think about that. Okay, so say that again louder because I don't think anybody over there heard it. Peace is joy at rest. Okay, let me stop there. Peace is joy at rest. Okay. Joy is peace on its feet. Joy is peace on its feet. That is like hurting my brain right now. 
I love that. No, I love that because it's, I'm thinking, okay, that's twisted around. Oof. I'll be chewing on that all week, right? Can you write that down somewhere? Would you text that to me? Okay, good. That's awesome. All right. Don't you just love it when great minds get together like this? Isn't that awesome? I love that. Okay, well, let's see what he says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever wonderful things happen in your life. (laughs) Now, notice the key word there is whenever. So what does the word whenever mean? (laughs) Brilliant. Yes. Yeah, but notice it's present tense. Most of us, me included, do not think about joy in the midst of trials until after they've happened, like a long time after they've happened, right? And sometimes that's the case with perspective, is that perspective is one of those things that kind of says, well, after the thing happened, and after I recovered, and after everybody was happy, and after I was in a good mood, then I had the joy. And some things work that way. Because if you're in the middle of the thing, it's really difficult to turn your, your perspective of that over and then it becomes joyful. Okay? But that's what I like about what he says. He says, whenever you experience it. So the question might be in terms of thinking about how I might shift my thinking when I'm in the middle of it versus being dependent on the thing itself ending, and then I can take the perspective. And the, Because the problem is today, when will that end be? Remember all the proclamations? See, the proclamations sort of inferred with, with, with respect to the pandemic was that, well, we'll do the best we can because we'll just hang in there because it'll end. I mean, that was, that was the idea of it. And frankly, everybody thought that's what would happen. So I don't think we were being misled. I think just nobody knew. Well, now we know. Not going away, right? Any more than normal stress occurs in a person's life. So we all were waiting, and many of us, um, those of us that were considered essential workers, so I, I was considered essential worker, thought that all we had to do was sprint through it because then we would be ready for the end of it. So um, how many of you like ever have ever run a race in your life, like in high school or college or someplace like that where you were a runner, and you started out with, they told you that it was the 100-meter or 100-yard dash, and you got to the finish line only to discover it was a marathon? <laughs> See, what's that mean? You blew right through all your energy on the front end thinking what? Well, when you get to the finish line, you're done. And then when you got to the finish line, you found out that it was a 23 more miles that you had to run, right? And that's what we're in. We're in a marathon. So we have to, we have to kind of recalibrate our thinking and recalibrate how we're going to respond to it so that we're not just simply eaten up totally on the front end and then got nothing left for the back end. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so how do, how do, how do you make that shift? So here's some ideas that I've got about that, practical ideas. Okay, first one is train yourself by a repetitive practice of gratitude and generosity, thinking of what God has done for you. So what I'm saying is, is that it's the idea that when you, what you think about, 
and the um, application that you make to something is that you're actually training yourself to think that way. So the more you think about something a certain way, then the more you're training yourself to think about that a certain way, right? That's kind of the idea. So if I train myself to think in terms of gratitude and then the expression of gratitude is to be generous, right? If I think that way, the more I think that way, the more that's the kind of person I become. Does that make sense? Yeah, pretty cool. So what would be a way to do that? Guard your gratitude ratio. I invented that, by the way. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Your gratitude ratio of three thanksgivings for every one complaint. Now, is that doable? Yes, it is. Okay. But many of us are going to have to practice that. Okay. Because many of us are oriented to notice the things that aren't happening and notice the things that didn't quite measure up to whatever the expectation is that we have, or just the things that are getting in the way of personal happiness. We notice that, right? And sometimes we say stuff about it, but other times we're just thinking it. Okay. And so for a lot of people, it's the other way around. It's Three complaints for every one Thanksgiving. I'm suggesting that we reverse that and move it to, uh, to the other way. And this would be true even if you have a lot of complaining that you feel is deserved. Right? Yes. How many of us would say that? We, if we had to be honest with ourselves, we would say that I have every right to complain because here is the thing that's causing that. Okay, but here's kind of interesting thing about that. Number three, the chemistry of complaints, that's negativity. Okay, negativity inside your body and your brain. The chemistry of that stays in your system three times longer than, than the chemistry of Thanksgiving, which is a positivity. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so that's why we want to feed ourselves more, and feed other people more with the idea of thanksgivings, not just complaints. But it's hard to do when the chemistry of that stays inside your system. Okay? So that's kind of interesting little tidbit there. All right, so here's the deal. Another way to shift is engage in serving others and then tell them why but change what you say as the reason for it. Okay, so a lot of people, when they engage in serving others, this time of year, there's a lot of serving that, that, that goes on, okay? What are often the, the things that people say as the motivation for serving others? What is it that people, you often hear people say, or maybe you've said yourself. They say, yeah, Armin? Okay, yeah, it's sort of that, that if I give or if I serve, then what goes around comes around, it comes back to me, and sometimes it does, okay? Yeah, so that's a reason that people give for serving. What else? People will say, well, it feels good. feels good to serve, and is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, other people say, well, it's because what I'm supposed to do, right? Yeah, Peggy? I'm thinking of a negative reason. Yeah. There's nobody else going to do it. Oh, nobody else is going to do it. And you're right. Huh? Yeah. So that's a negative reason. Okay, so I'm suggesting that we adjust that thinking, right? And instead we say, well, the reason why I serve is because I have so much to be grateful for. Now, if you say that out loud in our world today, 
people are going to do what? Oh, laugh. Yeah, they'll laugh. Okay. But they're also going to know, whoa, what's that about? It's so rare to hear it. And so the opportunity then for there to be a conversation that goes on after that is quite great. Okay? You could actually tie it to the gospel if you wanted to. Because when you think about everything God did for me, uh, this is just this is so little in, 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 in gratitude for that. Okay? Thoughts about that? Okay, let's keep going. Yes, sir. I struggle with trying to be humble without making it sound like I got so much grateful for look what all I have, but I don't I don't want to be pat myself on the back. I mean, somehow there has to be a spirit of humility in that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever found yourself sort of fishing for other people to tell you how humble you are? <laughs> Have you heard? You know what I'm talking about? Like it, yeah, it's sort of like, the, well, I'm your humble servant. What do you expect? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's like that, isn't it? It's, it's so easy just to let, to sort of slide into that. But I hear what you're saying. Um, and so where does humility come from, by the way? Oh, let's start even more basic. What does the word humble mean? If you're humble, what does that mean about you? Uh, yeah, but I mean, there's a little bit more, a little bit more specific definition I'm looking for. The Bible's word for uh, for humble means that you're teachable. You're teachable, coachable. Okay, and so people that aren't humble aren't right. You can't tell them anything. And you can, but they just blow it off. It, it's, you know, there are some people like that. There's some uh, in athletics, for example, there's some, uh, some athletes that get to a certain level and they think they, they don't need to be coached anymore. They don't last very long. Okay. So there's that, there's that sense of, of, of humility there, but humility grows out of gratitude. And so if I'm not grateful for where I am today on the basis of what has happened in the past, God included, but also other people, right, then, then the humility part isn't going to happen. The, gra- the gratitude part isn't going to happen. The generosity part isn't going to happen. So a lot of those things, you see, flow out of the realization or the perspective, the considering that we do, if you will, in terms of what God has done for us. Okay, so he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, okay? So trials, a little note here, trials are connected to the testing of one's faith, but often includes the likelihood of being tempted, okay? So some definitions, testing equals being weakened in order for faith to be strengthened. Isn't that great? And tempting is being weakened in order for faith in God's promises to be destroyed and replaced by faith in oneself, which then becomes a rejection of God's promises. Do you get? Do you see the gist there? The difference is, it, to some degree, it would be a difference of intent. Okay, so we pick it up in James one thirteen to fifteen, where James kind of expounds on that a little bit. He says, "When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me." For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by what? Their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So I had a temptation yesterday. 
Yeah. So, you know, I've been working on this diet. <laughs> you know, I announced this like months ago. Well, I've actually lost some weight, so I feel good about that. But uh, I was at my office. Uh, I do counseling on, on uh, Saturdays. And so I'm in, I share a building with somebody else. Uh, and so that somebody else, they have, yes, they have one of those uh, clear canister things, you know, that people put stuff in, you know, like M&Ms and things like that. So anyway, they had some York peppermint patties in there. And I was thinking, you know, I've done so well. <laughs> and then I looked at the uh, ingredients, dark chocolate. And you know, that's good for you. <laughs> and it's on my diet, okay? But the problem is, is the dark chocolate covers the part that isn't on my diet, right? So there was just a, this moment of temptation, Right. And how many of you think that I successfully was able to withstand that temptation? Oh, you guys are so good. Okay, let's keep going. Oh, I flunked that one. I, I know. So, so there it is right there. Okay, so each person is tempted when they are... Dra I was dragged away toward that candy thing. I was... Okay, by their own evil desire, there it was, I wanted it, and enticed. So here's a good question. When are you most susceptible to being enticed? Oh, okay. So we'll put that up on the board. That's a good one. Okay. We'll put that on the board. We'll put H, and we'll put A, and we'll put L, and we'll put T, and we'll put S. And then we start a new list with the word, with the letter B. Okay? So when you're hungry, you're very uh, uh, susceptible to being enticed. Yes. Uh, it is no accident that when Jesus was in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, what did he have to eat? Barely anything. Usually the fasting of the prophet in the wilderness would be uh, subsidence a very uh, subsistence uh, eating. Maybe some little hardtack bread and a little bit of water. That's it. Okay? So when we're hungry, yeah. Okay? When else are you most susceptible to being enticed? Angry. Angry. Very good. So let's put angry in there. Okay? We put angry. And we could also add when you're anxious. If you're worried about something or fearful of something, you know, then the thought is, ooh, I don't like how that feels, and so I better find something that will help me not feel that anymore. Okay, so that's where that comes in. All right, what else? What, the, what might the L mean? Lonely. Lonely, yep. Lonely. Um, I've been um, following with some interest the uh, the uh, uh, debate, I guess, if you're just the investigative stuff they're doing, on the impact of the internet, particularly Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, on the, the psyche of teenage girls, okay? I mean, they're really looking at it now, and they're saying, hey, you guys have known that all along, and it's, it's playing into that lonely part, that I'm all by myself, I'm all alone in my thoughts about my body and about my self-esteem and all those kinds of things, and I'm susceptible to bind into whatever is the enticement 
of the thing that's being promoted, either people's opinion about me or how my body looks or any of those kinds of things. It isn't just uh, teenage girls. It's also teenage boys and anybody else. But but that's what they're primarily looking at now uh, as being one of those things. Okay. What might T be? Tired. Oh, this is a very knowledgeable group about being enticed, I notice. Okay. If you're not getting enough sleep, I mean, or if the sleep you're getting is like tossing and turning, you're just ugh, like that. Okay. You're enticed. Okay. What about S? Sick. Sick. Yeah. If you run into fever or whatever. Okay. Now, what's B? This is a good one. Yes. You're bored. Boredom. Right? See, when we get bored, we're looking for something that will like liven us up a little bit. And I mean, how many of us, come on, how many of us when we were younger, we got bored and then we said, wouldn't it be fun if we? <laughs> yes. And then later you thought, gosh, we thought it would be just the funniest thing ever, right? And it it wasn't. All right, here we go. What? I didn't think I'd get caught. Yeah, that, well, that's the last thing we ever think about that. Okay, so there might be some other letters that we can think of someday. But, but again, to think of it from that perspective is God is not the one doing it. God is not the one doing it. Now, maybe he's allowing it in some sense. We could say that. But the allowing part comes in the form of the testing, and the purpose of it is to increase our dependence on God. And that with the dependence on God then comes an uptick in gratitude for what God has done, which then translates into generosity in in terms of how we interact with each other. Okay, that's where that's going. All right, so then he says, this is why we should be so happy when trials happen, is that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And it says, then let perseverance do what it's supposed to do so that you will turn out to be mature and complete. Okay? So the testing of your faith produces perseverance. What We think of perseverance as resilience. We're, we're hearing a lot about that today. People are doing all kinds of studies on grit and resilience and the ability to bounce back and, and things are tough and things are stressful. So who's going to get left behind versus who's going to be able to, to rise up and, uh, and, and, and defeat that? So endurance of faith and joy from our, from our faith perspective is that it's maintained even when, it's, when there is no logical reason for it. And that becomes the opportunity for other people to see the difference that faith in Christ makes. Because when, it, when the most logical thing in the world is to be miserable, right? Because all the crummy things that are going on in your life, or just the stressful things, or just the stuff that doesn't make any sense, right? When the logical thing is to for your ratio to be seven complaints for every one secret Thanksgiving, and you don't do it. And what comes out of your lips and what comes out of your countenance and, and the person that you are is, gra- is grateful and generous and full of thanksgiving. People will look at you like you need to be on medication. <laughs> and that, is a, that will be a wonderful moment when you're able to talk about how grateful you are for what everything God did for you. And people will not know what to do with that. Pastor? Yes. Why do we feel so guilty 
about questioning God, you sure you know what's going on? I'm sure no one here feels guilty about that. So, yeah, I think it's just part of our fallen nature to feel guilty about stuff and not let it go as much as God's let it go. Okay? So perseverance has work to do in us. So how many of you would say you're patient right now? Oh, Richard's the only one. He's patient right now. Oh, good. Sharon's patient. Okay. Two, two out of 90 people here, right? But part of that patience is a perseverance thing, right? Is I refuse to give up. I refuse to let down. Now you 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 know we rest those kind of things, but but we're not going to let what goes on around us diminish our faith. Sometimes we have to have the help of each other and the support of each other for that to happen better. Okay, that's the beautiful thing about this group. You all are extremely supportive and verbal. <laughs> So it's nice that you're verbal and supportive at the same time. Yeah, Eddie. This uh, attitude ratio can be deceptive sometimes because you may have many, many bad things Mm -hmm. and very few good things. So you have to really weigh it. You have to weigh it. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Just a few good things make you happier. Yeah, and so that's perspective, though, isn't it? See, it's it's stepping back and looking at it and saying, uh, I might, there might be one thing that is the weightiest thing compared to all the other things that aren't as important. You know, I think sometimes when we get to the end of our lives or near it or just toward it, um, our perspective is different than when we're younger, you know? You know, I think so. I I think that when we're younger, it's probably all about the moment and getting my, you know, getting what I want and kind of those things. But that's one of the things I think I appreciate about just getting older and having those experiences where you think, oh, I was going to die if I went through it. And then I went through it and came out a better person, you know, so good stuff. All right. Guess what? (laughs) Even with a one week wonder, I can't get through the whole lesson. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, yeah, that's a good idea. Homework, who said that? Yeah. Um, I kind of want to continue this conversation. So we'll make this a two-week wonder, okay? And then we'll expound on it a little bit. Would that be okay if we do that? Expound on a little bit? Because you know me, I got no shortage of things to expound on. So uh, we'll do that and we'll pick it up. And then I, I have some of the upcoming topics down below, but this is not all of them. It's just the ones that I've thought about and then have received. So it continue to give me ideas, all right? Because I just don't always think of the cool stuff that you guys want to talk about. Okay, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together, and thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. It speaks to us so much in these in these days, because it just seems like joy is kind of hard to come by. It it's kind of one of those things that you don't, you turn on the news and you hear negative stuff and you go on the internet and you got negative stuff and then you talk to the people in your life and it's just like everybody feels burdened and kind of blah. And yet we have this relationship of faith with you. And, and in that relationship, we are given the gift of your son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for us. Who, if, if that was all we had in life, 
that would be way better than anything this life can give. We've been so blessed. And so, Lord, I would just pray that you shift our perspective a little bit toward the idea that out of the gratitude for what you've done for us and the fact that we have so much in our relationship with you and each other, that that becomes the thing that drives what we do, how we serve, and how we are with each other. So watch over us this week, dear Lord, as we continue to kind of ponder joy and how to grow joy and and how to, uh, to live in joy each day so that as other people notice and other people ask about it, we're able to give that witness to the love you have for us and your son. Watch over us this week, Lord, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.